Hey everyone, this is Gans and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table podcast, where we try to make sense of what is going on in European technology. My guest today is Julian Lure. Julian is a friend, a writer, and a thinker, currently working as a startup partnership lead at Stripe in Berlin. For the past few years, he has been writing incredible essays on the intersection of technology and social norms, with some of my favorites being Singularly Service, Proof of X, and Is This Real Life? Julian is one of the most intriguing thinkers I know, and this conversation turned out to be even better than expected. During the episode, we discussed the difference between social media Julian and real life Julian, Julian's writing process, the notion of American entrepreneurs as celebrities and why in Europe that isn't the case, Julian's insightful signaling theory, why he tracks and measures pretty much everything he does on a given day, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hey Julian, how are you doing? Thank you so much for coming on the Seed Table podcast. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to be here. So, in one of your latest posts, you mentioned that there's that there's a Twitter Julian, and there's an Instagram Julian, and there's a Facebook Julian, and they are all different. So, what's the podcast Julian like? Ah, uh, good question. Um, I'm still trying to figure that one out, I guess. I'm still like, I think we had a conversation about this. I'm still not sure if audio is really the right medium for me. I think I'm a better writer than talker. So I'd say ask me again in a year from now, once I've done a few more of these podcasts. Um, but I hope that podcast Julian is, is pretty close to, to Twitter Julian. That's, that's sort of what I'm aiming for. So I'm sure intellectual in your own words. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the reason I asked this question is because I'm the same way, right? I prefer to either write or be on this side of the mic asking the, the questions. So I prefer writing guns. Uh, I'm wondering, why do you think that is? Is that how we think, right? Is that how we structure our thoughts or how we develop our thoughts? I think writing is just sort of like, it's, it's a safer medium. It allows you to really think about what you want to say, if, you know, before actually saying it. So when I write a blog post, I, I basically rewrite every other paragraph, like two or three times before I end up with a version that, that I actually like. And that's just not possible in like a conversation, right? Like, If, if I were to listen at like the last 30 seconds of what I said, I'd probably make five edits and just replace different words or just rephrase the entire sentence. So I think that's just one advantage that writing has. I also feel like Twitter is, at least for me, is better when I write a tweet, usually in, you know, in Notion or some other note-taking app. And then I let it sit there for a couple of hours at least before I actually tweet it, which just allows me to A, rephrase what, you know, what the tweet is, but also think about, is this really something that, you know, the world needs to uh, hear about? There's like, I, th I think there's a danger with Twitter to just react to other people's tweets or post something like very emotionally rather than, you know, having like a structured, rational sentence. So... That, that's, I guess that's why I prefer writing over, over talking. Since we were talking about writing, then let's move on to writing, Julian. Walk me through your writing process. Because you put out some of the best stuff that I read. Like, I immediately retweet it. And then I read it, right? Because but I know, I know it's going to be good. So walk me through your writing process, starting with how you develop original ideas. Um, there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem because... The best ideas I usually discover while I write. So I basically have like a list of, of different topics that I think are interesting. Usually starts with, I don't know, a tweet that I read, a book that I read, a podcast that I listened yeah. to. It was just like one interesting insight. And I think like, hmm, there's probably like a rabbit hole behind that insight that you could sort of like dive into and write a full um, blog post about it. 
And so I just start writing based on a specific topic. I don't really have a structure in mind at that point. I just start writing. And as I start writing, I just discover more and more ideas and more and more rabbit holes. And some of those rabbit holes become part of the article and others just go into sort of like a list of future things to write about. But yeah, it's a very unstructured process, really. I think, and this is this is like uh, when when people ask me how I structure articles, I think my articles could be a lot better if I would think about them, you know, in advance before actually writing them. I mostly write for myself, not really for the audience. So I do some editing afterwards. I always have people to sort of like proofread my articles and give me feedback. And a lot of their feedback actually goes into the article. You being, you know, one of those people. But there's not there's not really a clear, this should be sort of like the entry section. This is like the main part. And here's like a, a great ending. This is not really how my how my essays are are structured. They probably should be structured that way, but that would probably lead them to be less creative, I guess. I think you do okay. So I'm not sure if like not all advice is good advice. So you need to follow the best practices for that. Let's talk a bit about your editing process. Because uh, you, you mentioned you have people proofread your articles and me being one of them. But I think you do something else that it's very important. It's like it's not about the proofreading, but editing your articles feels like a conversation where the editors challenge your writing and your points, not just spot uh, grammatical errors. And one of the best people to do this is our friend Max. Yeah, hundred percent. He's he's had a huge impact on 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 my essays. So I'd say at least half of the credit should should go to him. Really, he he both improves the articles just in terms of sort of like grammar and sort of like better words that I should be using. And you know, obviously, I'm I'm not a native speaker, so this is super helpful. But then he also challenges a lot of like the ideas that I that I have in these articles. He's like. He's a very, very, very smart guy who thinks a lot about a lot of different things and has a lot of like interesting feedback, which again, sort of like, you know, back to my previous point, then leads to a lot of like follow-up essays or, or new ideas that I could that I could write about. It's it's a pity that he he doesn't write more himself. I've been I've been trying to encourage him to blog more frequently. I think I think it would be amazing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm think I'm gonna join you on that effort. Max is one of those underrated writers that no one knows about, so I'm gonna sort of link to, to Max on the show notes, and I'm gonna ping ping him again on that. But I think the key part here is the conversation side of things, right? It's it feels like writing is sort of this private thing, like we're doing over coffee, we're over beer, just we're doing it over Google Docs. And then once the conversation is done uh, and you sort of get help from the others, you polish it and you put it out there. And that might be the reason why we prefer, let's say, writing, because we get to a much better place than if we were just talking, which is what we're doing right now. What do you think? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I generally think that writing just helps you to think about things. I'm I'm not a big fan of like in-person meetings either. I think it's a lot more productive to you know, start a Google Doc or you know, some other note-taking tool and just collaborate on on a text together. I just feel that takes a lot of like emotions out of a debate. It helps you to think about things that you otherwise wouldn't have thought about. So it, I definitely think that writing is just a great think process. And it's probably also like the, the biggest benefit that I get out of writing is just to, it helps me to think about different things. I think that it leads me to think about like there, there should probably be a, a dedicated product for this sort of like a multiplayer version of of medium or multiplayer version of wordpress where you collaborate on on blog posts together feels like feels like there's an opportunity in that space i heard in one of your previous podcast appearances that you start writing on paper is that still how you do things yeah so um, it's just free of distraction. There's no, there's no Twitter on my uh, physical uh, note taking in in physical note taking, which which is great. So I have like a little physical notebook that I that I write in. It's basically just blank pages as well as so like post-it notes to then augment different um, different thoughts that I have to 
potentially replace them with you know with with other sentences later. But I get I'd say about eighty percent of my writing done on paper before I transfer it to WordPress. And then I do the remaining, you know, twenty percent directly in WordPress. It just helps me to see what the post will look like look like in its final version. I'm a very visual person. I think the design is at least as important as the actual content. And so that just helps me to, you know, see what the final article will will actually look like. And then I basically, once I'm done, I copy paste everything into a Google Doc, which is where the collaboration that we mentioned then takes place. And then sort of like final edits, I would I would do again in, in WordPress directly. So let's switch lanes a bit. So the, the post where you mentioned that there are multiple Julians, it's called, Is This Real Life? And in there, you make a point that I think actually going back to Max, that Max made. And that the theory is that it's not the lack of tech talent or VC that explains why Europe uh, hasn't been able to create a tech ecosystem like the US. It's the absence of some kind of story or religiosity that sort of has kept us from creating our own like local champions. And the US is able to just build these huge, huge companies because it's able to believe that it can actually create these super ambitious companies. Where do you stand on that? I think it's a it's a really interesting point of view. I'm not I, I don't think this like explains everything, but I do think it is an interesting viewpoint. I do think it explains why, you know, perhaps more talented people in the US go into or different people, I wouldn't say more talented, different people go into tech in the US versus versus in Europe. Uh, or maybe I, I don't know the numbers. I don't know if they're more computer science students in in the US than than in Europe or why you know were computer science students in the in the US are they more likely to end up at a startup compared to say you know a more traditional bank which might have ha- which might happen more often in in Europe where people just you you know search for safer job options I, I don't know I don't know the numbers behind this but I do think that I think this is an interesting point of view I'm not sure it explains everything that we see in terms of like sort of like startup activity in Europe compared to the US. I do believe that in the US there is there are more sort of like tech celebrities that people look up to. And that has like a very sort of like like saints in a in a religion that that people follow. If you look at sort of like the biggest startups in Europe in a lot of cases, you have no idea who the founders are. They're not like very public people. Whereas in the US, you have a lot of, you know, Mark Andreessen's and, and Peter Thiel's and Patrick Collison's and a lot of like, you know, very well-known CEOs who are very active on, on Twitter and, 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 other, and other media. That just doesn't happen as much in, in Europe. And I do think that... In the U.S., you know, because people look up to these people so much, that just attracts a lot more talent to the ecosystem. But there's also sort of like going back to sort of like mimetic theory, it just leads a lot of people to who want to copy who these people are and who want to become sort of like a people that a person that other people look up to as well. So I, I do think there's something there. <laughs> I was I was going to rep- uh, going to reply with that exactly right. <laughs> Do you think it's mimetic theory then that explains why sort of the fact that going to tech is celebrated in the U.S. that can sort of lead the U.S. to become this huge ecosystem versus the rest of the world? Yeah, look, I'm a fan of mimetic theory. I I do think that it's a good framework to that helps you to look at things. I think for those, you know, in the audience who are not familiar with mimetic theory, basically the idea is that everything that we do is is based on what other people do. So mimetic theory is this concept from um, a French philosopher called René Girard, who basically came up with this idea that everything you do is you look for a so-called mediator, someone you look up to, and you really look at what this person does 
because you want to become like that person. So you copy everything that that person does. It could be, so this explains why you buy specific things, you know, it might be because someone else wears, wears those things. It might be, you know, if someone has an interesting job, you want to become like that person, you'll take the same job, et cetera, et cetera. And I do think you can explain a lot of like user behavior, I guess, with that, with that theory. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if that was also a good explanation for why we see more activity in, in US tech and people being more public about their, their startups and, and their jobs in the US compared to Europe. So staying a bit on mimetic theory, you also put out uh, a sort of a theory of your own, which is signaling theory, in which you're saying that we think and say that we do something for a specific reason, but in reality, sort of the hidden selfish motive is to show off and increase our social status. How do we marry this sort of two theories? Yeah, this is a good question. I, I think they're basically the same thing. It's, it's basically the same coin. You just, you know, they're just two different sides of the same coin. So in mimetic theory, um, the theory basically is that, well, you, you copy someone else, you, tr you try to become like your mediator, like eventually you are going to be the mediator yourself. You'll have other people who then follow you which is basically what then, you know, signaling theory is. You're signaling different things about yourself. And those are things that, you know, your mediator probably signals as well. So I'd say it's, a, it's probably the same thing. Just, you know, just look at it from, from different angles. So this comes from sort of this signaling theory comes from your article, which is signaling as a service. And that has become one of those pillar articles that people refer to. So what crossed your mind when you hit publish? Like, did you expect that kind of reception? I, I did not. I, I didn't at all, actually. Um, I, I've been thinking about this topic for probably more than a year before I actually sat down and, 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 and wrote it. And at, at some point, you know, when you think about something for so long without ever, you know, talking about it or writing about it, you don't really know if that idea is just completely crazy and only makes sense in your head or if other people sort of like, you know, if other people will understand what you actually mean. So with that post in particular, I was a little worried that it's just like a weird idea that makes sense in my head, but nobody else will understand it. But isn't that how we sort of stress test ideas by putting them out there? Yeah, I, I guess you do. The question is, you know, do you stress them, stress test them before, you know, with with a tweet or by talking to someone else about them? So the problem that I have is that I, as, as I say, it's just better for me to write something down than try to articulate it because an idea, or at least for me, ideas always make more sense once I start writing them down rather than if I just talk about them. Has that post impacted your life in any way that you didn't expect? I'm not sure about that post in particular. I'd say more writing in general has had a nice side benefit in that it has led me to meet a lot of interesting people that I would have otherwise probably not met. And this is partly sort of like Twitter DMs. I was really like, when I started writing, I had like, I think less than 700 followers on Twitter. And I had never really used Twitter DMs. I wasn't sure what that product was for. And for some, and this is like, I think a lot of people don't know this. It's like, there's sort of like this shadow social network on Twitter, which is Twitter DMs. I think they only become relevant once you hit sort of like 1500 followers or so. And then you realize that there's a lot of people who have like really interesting things to say that they wouldn't say publicly on their profile, but they're willing to share them in, on Twitter DMs. So I think that's, that, you know, that's part of it. And then, you know, some of these people you, I don't know, you meet in real life, uh, at least pre-COVID, you know, or you just jump on a Zoom call and, you know, you have a lot of like interesting follow-up conversations. I think that's probably the, the biggest upside that, that, I've, that I've seen so far. I've seen that exact same thing. So whenever I put out something out there, you know, particularly on Twitter and particularly when it's sort of, I don't want to say controversial because I'm not sort of controversial for just the fact of being controversial, but something novel or that goes against the sort of the mainstream narrative, most of the responses come via the apps. 
and and people have very interesting things to say and I always push them to do say them publicly but they never do what do you think that is why do you think people don't sort of get into sort of the public conversation and instead like go one-on-one on the apps I well I don't like at least the conversations that I have in Twitter DMs is nothing, you know, there's nothing in there that you wouldn't be able to talk publicly about. It's not like, it's not like I'm, part of the, you know, it's not like I'm part of the intellectual dark web or, or something like that. You know, this is, a, I'm, I'm sure those conversations happen as well. I'm, I'm just not part of those conversations. I just feel that there's a lot of people who use Twitter, you know, who, who just don't want to, publicly discuss things you know maybe it's a maybe it's a question that they have and they are afraid to ask that question publicly and so they'll send you a, a twitter dm or I, I don't know what what people drives to what drives people to you know have one-on-one conversations rather than public conversations but it, it is interesting how many people communicate only or primarily via twitter dms and you know related it's it's kind of amazing how horrible twitter dms are as a product when they 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 could and should like it could and should be such a better product totally um speaking of products you have some of probably one of the best product minds that i know yet you don't work in product per se and you, you sort of you were never a product manager right or anything like that so how do you train this sort of sex sense? Good question. I don't think you have to become a product manager to, you know, to be able to think about products. It's more like people who are have a sense for products just become product managers. I'd say it's it's probably that way around. I've just always been, like ever since sort of like ever since the day I got internet access and it is sort of like, you know, 20 more than 20 years ago. I've just been fascinated not just with like the information that other people share on the internet but also like how can you participate how can you build something on the internet so it's just something that i've been passionate about for a very long time and this is it's not you know product management per se it's more like you know ui ux design how can you create on the web how can you be more productive you know with with a with a tool such as a computer and Writing just helps me to put some of those ideas into a more concrete form, I guess. What advice do you have for someone who's trying to understand product at a deeper level? I'm not sure if I have a good answer to this. I guess you would just have to use products ex- extensively. But I think you have to have some sort of like natural interest in products to, I, I would say, to, you know, it, I, th- I think you should probably pick a specific type of industry or a specific type of product that you're really excited about. And then just, you know, look at what different products are out there in the, in that industry. And honestly, just start writing about them. Like, at least for me, that that helps me a lot. I, I don't have, I don't think I have great ideas about products by just talking about them. Like the, the best ideas, as I've mentioned earlier, just just come when I sit down and, and start writing about them. Do you consider yourself uh, an early adopter? Are you one of those guys who just plays with new stuff all the time? It depends on the type of product. So on hardware product, probably not. I usually play it safe and I have like other people test the product first and, and I wait for sort of like the second or third generation before I actually ad- uh, adopt it myself. For software products, I'm always happy to um, test out new things. So I guess that's another advantage of like when you write in public, you just get introduced by a lot of people building interesting things in a space that you that you've written about, and so you get to test a lot of stuff super early on, which is which is awesome. What's an underrated product you've come across that you can't believe people aren't just raving about? Twitter. Um, <laughs> I I think this is like this is my honest answer. I can't believe that there aren't more people on Twitter. It's probably the most underrated product in tech. I feel like people look, you know, when people discuss Twitter, they sort of like look at sort of like monthly active users and how much revenue they've generated uh, in, a, in a quarter. And I think those are the wrong metrics to look at when it comes to Twitter. I have never been, I've never seen a product where there's so many interesting people in one place having so many interesting conversations. And there's so many ideas that are generated in those conversations. 
if this is, I guess, impossible to measure, but it would be amazing if someone would track sort of like the GDP of all the products that have been created, you know, inspired by a conversation their creator had on Twitter before. I think that's sort of like the the way that people should measure the importance of 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 social networks like Twitter. Impossible to do, but yeah, I think t- Twitter is probably my answer of like the most underrated tech product. And the the funny thing about Twitter is that, and and going back to this sort of having conversations in public is, is this like there's a lot of interesting people having interesting conversations. And of course, those conversations happen privately as well, maybe on the phone and email. But the thing about Twitter is that not only they make it, it makes it public, but also accessible, right? You are just one reply away from saying a smart thing on a conversation, right? And, and actually contributing to it. Well, I think A is, you know, contributing, but then the other, I think, and you, you see this trend on a lot of like social networks where... A lot of people just, you know, they're basically just leechers, I think, as you as you call them. So they don't contribute. They just consume. I think there's like this interesting stat that on Reddit, I think it's like 90% of all users never actually post something. They just read other people's content. And I wouldn't be surprised if Twitter was, was similar. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's tremendous value in that. So if I have like 100 people who read my thoughts or say I have a product idea and you know, a hundred people read it and sort of like two people actually go and try to build that thing. That's, I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? So yeah, it's a, it's a vastly underrated product. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those things that it's hyped or overhyped, but still vastly underrated. I, I have a name for this. I, I call it the Lord of the Rings effect because of the books and the sort of the, the movies, right? They're widely hyped, but still underrated. And I think like one of the other things that, I, like Estonia is another example, right? Estonia is super hyped, but it's still underrated. Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a good analogy. So we're talking about products. Now let's, let's talk about companies, right? What European company are you fascinated by? It's hard to pick like one specific company i spend a lot of time looking at sort of like the startup ecosystem in in germany and in particular and a trend that we've seen here for the last couple of years which i'm really excited about is sort of like we have more people with like very strong product skills and very strong design skills building companies like Berlin traditionally was very heavily influenced by rocket internet and was more like sort of like, I wouldn't say basic ideas, but basically someone else in the US had an idea and and you would just copycat that idea of like marketplaces and other things that are just like very operations heavy. And it's just something where the product itself isn't that difficult. It's just, it's more difficult to scale them to, you know, to build them in the first place, get like a critical mass of users on them and then scale as quickly as possible. And you know, those are great companies, don't get me wrong, but I get way more excited about companies where people put a lot of thought into the actual product, into the actual design, make sure that a product is pixel perfect, have something that's actually innovative that hasn't been around. Like I can't mention like one specific company, but a few that come to mind is sort of like Pitch being a great example here in Berlin. My friend Dennis is building Amy, which is sort of like a productivity tool that sort of like marries your calendar with your to-do list. Endel is an interesting company sort of like, you know, soundscapes that are supposed to help, you know, make you more productive. Those are just like super innovative, like really well-designed products. And those are the types of companies that I get really excited about. We're talking about Berlin. You previously lived, worked, uh, and studied in Dublin, London, in Milan and in Vienna, and now you're in Berlin, and that's that's quite a bit of places. Do you think different cities send different messages? Yeah, I, th- I think that like you know, people. I'm not. I'm not really sure. It's it's the city itself. It's more like the the people in those cities, and just people have different mindsets, and so those those cities definitely differ a, a lot. Berlin, particularly, I think what I enjoy is that it's you know it's very multicultural, uh, a lot of like international people here, people with like very different backgrounds, a lot of different ideas, very creative people. I think there's no, 
in contrast to other places, it's, you know, it's not conservative at all. Like it doesn't really matter what you do or, you know, the way you look, it doesn't matter here. So, and I think this was sort of like, you know, 10 years ago when people started to become bullish on, on Berlin as like a startup ecosystem, I think the hope was that you would see more crazy startup ideas just based on, you know, how crazy this the city is like outside of tech. I'm not sure we've, really seen that trend like you know on the contrast actually but still you know bullish on berlin long term going back to the messages uh that different cities send so the message that i get from barcelona is chill and the message that i get from berlin let's say it's it's okay to be weird it's okay to sort of go against mainstream because you're safe here the message that i get from let's say Paris is, it's not a message, but it's more of a clash between the old, sort of the aristocracy and the new, right? And I, I also lived, so I lived in Cincinnati, I lived in Milan, I lived in Paris, now in Barcelona. And I've been thinking about how sort of different cities send different messages. And I don't know, it's just something I wanted to sort of ask since you've been all over the place. I haven't really been thinking about like specific messages that cities send. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a great opinion on this. Uh, it does feel like a great blog post, though. So it's definitely something I should think more about. <laughs> Maybe I'm gonna take a stab at writing it, but I'm, I don't think I'm the sort of the the right person to write that. So let's let's switch lanes a bit. You track everything in your life, or almost everything. What's the origin story of that? So this started years ago. I've always had a couple of tools that sort of like helped me to quantify different aspects of my years. So like back in, this was like 2004, 2005, there was this chat app called Miranda that would sort of like combine all your different chat apps. And by chat apps, I mean sort of like ICQ and Amazon Messenger and AOL Messenger and like all these like old school messengers that that people um, were using back in the day. And there was a plugin for that chat tool that gave you all sorts of interesting statistics, like who are the person that you talked most to? Um, what words do you use more of, most often? What are like, what's the time where you're most active? And I always thought that was like super interesting. And then over time, I added a few other tools to my quantified self stack, sort of like last FM that gave me like interesting data about my music listening behavior. And at some point I was like curious how much you do in an entire year. So looking at sort of like the, the music data, I was just like, how many songs do you listen to in an entire year? And so I thought it'd be interesting to do this like project where you quantify or you try to quantify like every single aspect of your life just to figure out how much you do in a year. And so back in 2013, I basically had this project where from January 1st till December 31st, I would try to keep track of everything, like how many people I talked to, how much beers I drank, how much coffees I had, how much time I spent in the shower, how much time I spent brushing my teeth, like literally everything. And I did that for the entire year, a super interesting experiment, like super interesting data. And, you know, while I was doing it, I just found out that some of these things are not just interesting, but they also help you to sort of like improve certain aspects in your life or, you know, build habits that you want to build. And so I just kept doing these, these yearly projects, some of which I publish on the web, but the majority of it is just like, it lives in a in a private spreadsheet that I just use by myself. Do you spend time trying to extract uh, patterns and modify your behavior? For instance, you publicly track nightmares. Have you been able to minimize them, for instance? So I've never had a problem with nightmares. So this was never something that I, I, tried, to, mm -hmm. I tried to improve on, really. But there are other things where... There's certain things where I, I try to build habits, like fitness habits, like just to, you know, do exercise um, on a regular basis. So this is something where tracking really helps. Or 
you know, conversely, sort of like things that you want to stop doing. So something that I've noticed in the data is that I, I do drink more alcohol than I than I probably should. And so I just, at the beginning of the year, I set myself specific goals that are tied to some of the, the numbers that I track. And so one of them is like, there's only a certain amount of, of days in the year that I'm allowed to drink. And so that's something that I track just to keep myself accountable. That's very cool. And how does recording your media consumption affect what you read, what you watch, what you, yeah. So the whole, like everything that I track, like lives in a pretty big Airtable spreadsheet um, with different tabs for different categories. One of those categories is media consumption. So I track how much time I, I spend reading specific books, listening to podcasts, watching movies, playing video games, etc. And this is something that I only like people assume that I spend a lot of time in this spreadsheet, but it's really not more than, I don't know, three to four minutes per day, like five max, because at some point you get into the habit of sort of like just tracking these things automatically. And then the first thing I do in the morning is just open the spreadsheet, fill out all the data, you know, for the previous day. And then I, I just count things as they happen. So like one of the side benefits of doing this is you just become a lot more conscious about what what you actually do and how you spend your time. And um, when I first did this like big project, I, I would just carry a little notebook around with me and I would just, you know, write things down as they happened. But then over time, I really got into the habit of just, you know, remembering things. And it's not that many things that you have to remember. Um, so, you know, when you start reading a book, you just look at the watch. It's like, what's the time? And then when you stop reading, you do the same and you realize, okay, I read for about 40 minutes and that's what I would enter into the spreadsheet the next day. So it's not like super accurate to the second, but it's pretty, it is pretty accurate. Yeah. And what about what you actually read, right? Because you, you say, hey, I, I read this post and this books. Does that prevent you from like, let's say reading something stupid that you really want to read, but that is going to be public uh, so you don't read it, right? Yeah, there's, there's definitely some of that, some of that behavior. Were you reluctant to do things because you know that it's going to screw up your data or it, it won't look as nice in, in a blog post? There's definitely some of that. I, I do try, you know, for the data not to influence my behavior too much, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure it does. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if sort of like the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. You know, maybe maybe it does lead me to read more interesting books or more sort of like books that are, you know, books that are considered like good or intelligent books, and maybe it leads me to read more of those. I'm I'm not sure if that's a bad thing per se. You know. No, absolutely, absolutely. I wasn't sort of implying that it was a bad thing, but it was. It'd be funny to sort of track like guilty pleasures right like if i were sort of tracking my entire life i'm not gonna sort of go and watch gossip girl because then it's gonna it's gonna show up on the <laughs> on the data yeah it, it has definitely led me to watch less tv I, i'd say um and just read books instead so that's that's definitely things that you know you notice in the data that you spend way more time watching TV than than reading and I do get a lot more out of reading books than watching like they're great TV series but there's also a lot of like on it's like especially Netflix there's a lot of shit right like we we really just waste your time and so I I do think that's sort of like a positive side benefit of the whole tracking thing is there something you think everyone should track and like what what would that be like maybe like couple kpis i don't think there's like one specific thing that people should track but i think if people want to become better at a certain thing or if they want to build a habit then just tracking things and and seeing if you actually achieve what what you want to achieve i think that's that is important i don't think you know and i'm sure there are other way other ways to to build habits. But just for me personally, that's something that has worked pretty well. Is there any sort of non-obvious idea or habit that uh, came from this that had a big impact on your life that maybe once you know about them, like you don't want to live without them again? You mean like a specific, a specific 
pattern that I've noticed in the data. And so I changed my behavior and th this changing behavior has sort of like had a meaningful impact. Right, right. So for instance, an example, like I don't track anything, but sort of my non-obvious habit is that I start every single day, I brew a cup of coffee and then I read for like an hour. Like that's my trick. And most people don't do this. I tested it. I don't know why, but I can't live without that right now. Like that's my, that's my secret trick. I'm not sure if I have like a secret trick, but I spend a lot of time analyzing different data points that I thought might have an impact on, on my, on sort of like my health. So just because I spend way too much time in front of the computer, I have pretty severe back problems. And so I've looked at a lot of data points that, you know, could have an impact, you know, besides just like spending a lot of time, you know, in front of a computer, but sort of like tracked of like, you know, if I do this type of exercise, does, does it get better? If I go for a swim on a regular basis, does it get better, et cetera? And the swimming has become a habit that's, that's super important uh, to me. So I usually go for a swim about three times a week. Um, not just it doesn't just help me with sort of like back problems, but it, I also feel like it's very very meditative sport. Like you don't see anything, you don't hear anything. Gravity doesn't play as much of a role. So um, <laughs> to me, it's sort of like forty five minutes of, of of meditation that I can't live without. That's that's very cool. Something I really enjoy discussing with people privately and publicly is turning points. There's this book called The 15 Lessons of History. And I think the main lesson from that book is that a single event can sort of change the course of history as we know it. And not only this is possible, but I think it happens more often than we can imagine. So there are a million examples, but one could be, for instance, like modern Western civilization is modeled after Roman law. Uh, but if Athens has won the Battle of, of, of Syracuse in, in 1400 uh, before Christ, then the main influence for today's society would have been Greece, not Rome. Like, is there some kind of turning point in your life that you usually point to? I think the best example that I can think of, and I'm not sure if this is a turning point, but just getting access to the internet has definitely be, it's definitely been a sort of like a life-changing moment in the sense that like when, when people ask me for sort of like career advice or you know, how do you get, you know, how do you become successful in, in, in tech? Not, not that I am, but you know, how do you get started in tech? Like what, you know, what university should I go to? What, what should I study? I always tell people that honestly, like the majority of what has helped me in my career is not, you know, which university I picked or the grades that I got in high school, but it's just stuff that I read on the internet when, other people told me I should probably spend less time on the internet. So I don't, I don't know if that counts as a turning point, but I think that's sort of like the best example that I could give. I think the internet is just vastly underrated. Yeah, hundred percent. So fitter, happier, and, and more productive. That's your Twitter bio. Than whom or than when? This is a, this is a quote from a, from a radio head song. And I just put it in there because I couldn't think of, anything else that i put in there there's no deeper meaning behind behind uh, sure. behind that sentence cool i'll, I'll just scratch that out <laughs> i thought it was interesting i should i should probably come up with like you know some super interesting statement that's a total lie of of, of why i have this in there but i haven't i haven't thought about that statement yet <laughs> We we'll just switch it to the like that one, like billionaire philanthropist liar or something like that. <laughs> so, what do you think is your edge? Like that combination of sort of skills that make you unique or exceptional. I'm I'm not sure I have like a particular edge, but I can give you an example of like my edge in in writing, and what has made me a better writer. And this is more of an accident really than, than like a strategy. I was always a little hesitant to, you know, start writing online because I'm not a native speaker. And so my writing is, will never be as good as sort of like that of a lot of other people out there who are like great writers. I read a lot of like blog posts and where I'm like, oh, I wish I could write like that. And so that has kept me from 
publishing things in, in English for a very long time. And interestingly, though, when I did start writing, I got a lot of feedback from people saying that they enjoy my writing because I'm able to take a complex topic and write about it in like a very sort of like simple way. And the the answer I always give to them, you know, I tell them, look, it's it's a bug, not a feature. I just happen to have stumbled upon this sort of like uh, language that I, I guess is interesting enough for people and, and works as a blog post, even, even though I'm, I'm probably not an amazing writer. Like I couldn't write like a great novel, but it's, it's good enough for these types of blog posts. I think you're using the definition of great writer incorrectly, like being able to write a novel. Uh, I don't think that's the definition of a good writer. Of course, like you have Robert Caro, right? And he's a great writer, but uh, I think you're underestimating yourself. Like, I think it's more about sort of like, you know, structure of sentence and, and bringing some sort of like irony into posts. Like when I do write, I'm like, if, if I was writing this in German, the, the, the text would probably be a lot more engaging or it could be funnier or whatever. Whereas in, in English, you, you sometimes just lack the grammar or the words to, to be a better writer. But as I said, sort of like, this has been, you know, it, it, for me at least, it has been sort of like an accidental advantage, I guess. Yeah. It hasn't been a blocker for you, that's for sure. Do you think, so you, you're a German sort of native speaker. Um, do you think different languages help you access like different ideas? Like, are you a different guy in German than in English? Probably am. Yeah, I, I probably am. I, I also think that I think about different topics in different languages. So tech topics, for example, I would think about in, in English mostly because most of the reading that I do, uh, you know, about tech or conversations that I have with people in tech is in English. And then in German, it would be, you know, more topics that I would, you know, or, discuss with, with friends and family who are, who are not in tech. It's actually weird where if, if you talk to other German people in tech about tech topics in German, you just end up with this weird hybrid of English and German, which sounds really horrible, where every second cent, like word that you use is like an English word, just because there is not really a German equivalent for it. Uh, so it's, it's definitely something I've noticed. Yeah, I have the same with Spanish. Like, what's the Spanish word for, let's say, KPI? There isn't, right? Right. So you just mix all those things in there, and it's, it's actually quite corny or quite ridiculous. But I don't know, it's how we get by. What's your biggest idea right now? Something you're really thinking about? As always, difficult to put into words because when I'm thinking about something, the actual big idea is usually not the idea that I start thinking about. It's just it's sort of like it crystallizes as I as I think and more about it and as I start writing about it. I have one topic that I've been thinking about a lot, which is I, I call the post the great fragmentation. And what I think the post will be is that the post will probably be completely different. But at this point, what I think the post will be is basically looking at different industries where you see a trend of, I wouldn't call it democratization, but you see individuals becoming bigger players than sort of like larger institutions. And a lot of people have, have written about this. I, I look at it from a slightly different angle, but you know, there's, there's a couple of examples in, in here, which is sort of like, in like journalism, it's sort of like individual journalists becoming their own medium. They don't need a New York Times. They just go to Substack directly and have a direct relationship with their audience. This is like, you know, just one example. And a lot of people have written about this. But I feel like there's a similar trend in a lot of other industries. And I'm currently thinking about what those industries are and how what what the relationship between those different industries is i'm not sure if this makes sense it, it sort of makes sense in my head but i really have to start writing it down for it to to to, to really have like a a concise for it to be a concise essay
It absolutely does, right? Um, I've been thinking about sort of the failure of institutions and how sort of sometimes like individuals or groups of individuals replace those institutions. So I, yeah, look, looking forward to reading that one, absolutely. So one, one of the points in this essay is that I don't actually think that institutions are failing or going away. It's just, they're just changing. There's this thing where people, you know, te like especially tech Twitter would write about, you know, journalism is dead and we don't need the New York Times. But then it's the same people who would still quote the New York Times on you know, the <laughs> landing pages of their, of their product because it still is important for like credentialing. I don't, I don't think they're going away. It's just that their role changes. And we do see a lot of like individuals becoming sort of like their own media brands. But in the background, you still have usually some infrastructure players that are basically institutions and have a lot of say about like who gets published and who doesn't get pub who doesn't get published. It's just that those players are slightly changing. So you know, instead of the New York Times, it might be Substack or, or Twitter or Medium. Just you know, in that particular example. But sort of like this trend that I'm trying to outline is that this is happening across many different industries and I still have to think about it a bit more, but uh, super interesting topic. Thank you so much, Julian, uh, for coming. It's been a pleasure to ramble with you on all these topics. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seed Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.